Welcome to the Financial Planners Southeast Asia podcast, a show dedicated to driving the positive evolution of financial advice, specifically within Southeast Asia. To join a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. Welcome to another episode of the Financial Planners Southeast Asia podcast. When here and today, we have a multifaceted financial planner. So he's not only a senior financial planner, but he's also a, a columnist, an author. He's also a professional speaker and the CEO of RD Wealth Creation. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome uh, Rajin Devadasan. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Rajin. Hi, Gwen. It's actually Rajan. So it's Rajan Devadasan. Rajan. Oh. Yeah, I am so honored to be on this podcast. Thank you for asking to hear a little bit about my story. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. So I'm actually very um, grateful for Hoi Hoi Lim for um, introducing me to you. So I actually did um, ask a little bit about you from from Hoi Hoi. And so I wanted to learn a lot of things from you, but I wanted to start with um, your origin story. So how long have you been in the financial advice industry? That's a good question. Let me think back. Now, you actually referred to me as a senior financial planner. I guess mm -hmm. my only real credentials for seniority is I've been around a long time and I've got sufficient <laughs> white hair to justify that. Um, but I think I've been making money from financial planning for about 25 years, I think, as we chat wow. now in August 2021. If I cast my mind back to 1996, I think that's probably when I first started making money, um, and it was specifically about writing on financial planning. Mm -hmm. So as you well know, because um, I, I guess now you get an opportunity because of your podcast to be able to chat with people throughout Southeast Asia who are in the uh, financial planning and financial advice um, spaces, mm -hmm. that uh, most people tend to enter financial planning through fairly um, predictable paths. They will either come from, not either, but they'll come from insurance or they will come from investing or they will come from banking or they will come from estate planning. My yeah. case, um, my entry was actually through writing. Um, so this is actually what happened. Um, I uh, won a scholarship when I was 18 years old uh, to leave Malaysia and to head to London to do my A-levels. And so I stayed on in the UK for quite a while. I did my A-levels, I did my degree, and then I worked in the UK for a short while as a trainee chartered accountant. I left the UK in late 1989, and I had a stack of uh, credit card bills, uh, which I will tell you about later. But um, by the time I managed to land a job in Malaysia, it was... Um, I think already like March 1990, and that was with a TV station as a as a cadet broadcast journalist. And I didn't stay there very long. I didn't like it very much. And mm -hmm. then I went around looking for another job, and I landed a job as a business writer for a magazine called Malaysian Business. And I had a wonderful time there. Wow. Uh, I stayed um, with the magazine for 49 months, four years in one month, and. You know, because I've had plenty of jobs, um, that by far 
was actually my best stint as a conventional employee. I was fortunate enough to actually win uh, an, an award. It was um, called the Citibank Pan Asia Business Journalism Award. And yeah. at that time, um, there was like one winner per country per year from Asia and two winners per country per year from Latin America. And so that, that basically became a two-week seminar, I think, uh, basically out of Columbia University in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I got to, to mix with, with very, very high quality people, had a really lovely time. And so uh, when I got back to Malaysia uh, after that, uh, that award and, and the ability to go to Columbia and visit Bill Clinton's White House and go to ah. the New York Fed and uh, let's see, the World Bank as well, it was a wonderful time. And then as soon as I got back to work and I was at my desk, I found out that even though my bosses had put me up for a, a promotion, which is very, very minor, um, would have meant, I think, 60 ringgit more per month, which is only about 15 US dollars more per month. But the HR department apparently said that because I'd also got a promotion the year before, that, you know, there's no reason to give me another one. Oh. And, uh, yeah, and you know, just save the, the budget for someone else. I was pretty upset. And I then was more open to uh, taking a job as an investment analyst. Now, ironically, the person who hired me to be an investment analyst for what was then called Standard Chartered Securities in Malaysia was actually the same boss who had hired me for Malaysian business. So he'd hired me and then about nine or ten months after um, I had joined, um, he, he moved on and eventually became an, uh, a really high caliber investment analyst and then uh, head of research. So he had offered me a job, I think, a year before, but I was having so much fun that I said no thanks. And then he offered it to me again when I was rather disgruntled about losing out on this 15 US dollar per month increment. Yeah, And uh, so I became um, an investment analyst and I found that I had gone from being a journalist who was at least externally perceived as being good to being a really terrible analyst. I mean, my when I made that jump, my salary increased 200%, which means my income, my monthly income tripled. But my job satisfaction, I think, plummeted <laughs> about 90% or so. So I was pretty miserable and I really felt like I was a lousy analyst. So as I was getting more and more disgruntled on the job, I kept thinking, well, what is it that I actually want to do? And I, I had mentioned to you that I'd, I'd won a scholarship to um, do my A-levels in London. The scholarship came from the A-level college there. It was called Davis's College. And uh, it opened many, many doors for me. But my school exam results were okay-ish. I think by one metric, I probably had like the second highest in the state I was born in, which is Malacca. But Nothing great, you know, and people are competing at a national level. There's no reason why I should have been given that scholarship, except that they had also asked for um, an essay. And I think um, it was the written essay that, that actually, um, you know, you. took me over the hump, as it were. Um, a couple of years before that, I won a, a, a national school essay writing contest. I think the title was Write About a Mathematician You admire and i picked galileo galilei so i remember one school holiday i went down to singapore um, stayed with my favorite auntie i was chatting with her yesterday actually and um uh, i used singapore's uh, very very well equipped public libraries this is long before the 
time of, uh, you know, broad-based internet, right? So yeah. you'd have, have to go to the library and actually get books. So I won that and then it just opened doors. So writing was always a lot of fun. And so now I mean, Standard Chartered Security is being miserable, right? So I'm thinking, well, what <laughs> yeah. would I be happy doing? And I figured, you know, if I, if I ran my own freelance writing outfit, I'd be very happy. So uh, I'm, I'm actually answering your question, Gwen, how I entered yeah. financial planning. So yeah, what yeah. happened was I left this incredibly high-paying job to start my own business. And then the first month hit me and I realized, oh, no income coming in. This is highly <laughs> stressful. Yeah. So because of very, very bad financial planning on my part, I ran out of cash. There was no cash flow. And so I began to sweat bullets. And thankfully, I was actually rescued by a phone call from Singapore. A new magazine was starting up called Smart Investor in Singapore. And I went down for the interview and uh, was offered the job. So I went to Singapore. And then um, I, I don't know whether you know, because I know you're based in the Philippines, but from um, an exchange rate perspective, the Singapore dollar is much, much, much stronger than the Malaysian ringgit. Right now, the exchange rate is roughly three Malaysian ringgit to one Singapore dollar. Now, um, to add salt to the wound, as it were, Malaysia and Singapore were actually the same country from uh, 19, from September 16th, 1963 to August 8th, 1965. August 1965, Malaysia effectively kicked Singapore out of the, the, the federation that had been formed out of Malaya, uh, Sabah, Sarawak, Singapore, and Brunei basically had been invited, but it said, no, thank you. No, thank you. So yeah. um, when I was there in Singapore working, this was in 1996, so 25 years ago, the exchange rate was 1.8 ringgit to the Singapore dollar. And so, you know, Singapore has just zoomed ahead of Malaysia. Uh, yeah. Basically, it's, it is and the strong man the of Southeast of Asia. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a lot of it boils down to leadership. I, I won't go into the Philippines because I don't know very much, but I do know that at one stage, the Philippines was actually the second most successful country in Asia. Second, yeah, I think, exactly. only to Japan. It was um, the tiger, then, the tiger economy, or, or something like that. Of yes, the, and you guys were called tiger long before Malaysia was, and um, but it really boils down to to national leadership. So Singapore has been very, very consistent. So what happened was I was with that team for a while. The magazine was called Smart Investor Magazine, and um, I started being sent off to cover financial planning related events. Now, I was really, really interested in financial planning because in late 89, when I actually left the UK after being there for seven years, mainly in London, but in general, in and around London, I left, again, very bad financial planning. Mm -hmm. I left London with a stack of UK credit card debts. Mm. Um, and so I came back to Malaysia and for many, many years, I actually converted the bulk of my Malaysian uh, earned income to sterling. I would get a, a pound draft and I would mail it back to my branch manager in London for NatWest Bank. And it took me years to, to pay off, but I paid off every single UK credit card debt that I had. Unfortunately, I'm a very, very slow learner. And so to <laughs> celebrate getting out of UK credit card debt, I got into Malaysian credit card debt. But along <laughs> 
along the way, yeah. I, I had been paying attention and I had actually been learning um, how, to, how to do some of these things. So that second um, uh, ignominious uh, episode with credit cards uh, ended a lot quicker than the first one. So uh, like I said, I entered financial planning because of writing. And uh, it's just that I've made so many mistakes that people call me a senior financial planner in Malaysia now simply because I've been around a long time. But prior to COVID, if, if I'm on a platform or whatever, whether I'm speaking at a small workshop or a seminar or a large conference, one of the most important points I bring up is that I, I tell the people listening, look, I'm not speaking to you from a position of strength. I'm speaking to you from a position of abject stupidity. But the point is that financial planning is an incredibly powerful process. And if you let it, and if uh, the right people guide you, chances are you're going to end up much better off than if you never went down that particular path of personal finance. So I hope I answered your question. I hope I, I uh, wasn't wittering on for too long. Uh, no problem. It was actually really nice. You covered up a lot of points there. And it's very interesting that you really opened up to us about your story. Because um, I think a lot of us are actually has a similar story. Like for me, I too came from like a background that I thought that I was really good with money. Um, I didn't have any credit card until now. I still don't have a credit card. Really? So um, you operate yeah. only on debit cards? Yes. Um, I'm still cool. afraid. Well, good for you. I know that. <laughs> yes, I know. And I didn't have debt. So I didn't have a credit card. I didn't have any debts, but I didn't have savings as well. So, um, and I thought that I was like the best single mother out there because I didn't have any debt and I was able to sustain my family and all that. And then I met um, this financial advisor who became my husband, uh, oh, cool. and he, yeah, and he opened the my mind to why um, I was missing out on a lot of things. So I think that uh, your 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 story resonates to a lot of um, listeners to this podcast as well because we came from a place where um, we thought that we were good to go but we really needed financial advice. Which leads me to my next question is that because you've had this background, like who is your ideal client now? Well, that's a really, really good point. Um, Malaysia is a very, very diverse, very cosmopolitan country, but I am incredibly unhappy with a lot of the government policies. Um, it is my firm belief that over the last 50 years, because of ill-conceived government policies, Malaysians' ability to actually compete in a meritocratic global marketplace, that ability has actually been, it's been weakened, it's been diluted. For instance, uh, the level of English proficiency among Malaysians, uh, if you go back maybe 40 to 60 years ago, I think was you know, pretty much one of the best in, in Asia, uh, probably second to maybe India and the Philippines. Uh, sorry, third, maybe after Singapore. Sorry, beg your pardon, uh, India and the Philippines. But other than that, we were very, very good. But because of misplaced um, nationalistic policies, um, Malaysia has been sliding. Um, and, and right now, um, every time they do a study on the quality of our local graduates, Two things are, are actually missing. One is the ability to communicate wisely in English. 
and the other one is actually critical thinking skills. So it's just very, very sad. And we're going down a particular path that I think is um, depressing. Uh, that's not to say there is no hope in the future, Yeah. Mm-hmm. but uh, things are looking grim at the moment. So um, I'm not going off on a tangent. I'm actually answering your question. My ideal client is actually um, a middle to upper management employee or a business owner. And you know, that individual may own a very large business or just a small SME. It's fine. Uh, but he or she effectively needs to be English proficient. This is not mainly because I'm exercising some level of snobbery. It's actually because of my own linguistic limitations. So I'm only bilingual, and most people in my country know at least three languages, sometimes really? four. But I only, I'm only bilingual, and it's only English, Malay. And my Malay is pretty bad. I mean, I can go to a stall and I can order food like satay and stuff. But other than that, God help you if you're trying to get a decent sentence out of, uh, out of me in Malay. Um, I remember uh, before I won that scholarship to do my A-levels in London, I finished off the equivalent of O-levels uh, in Malaysia. And I got what was a C3, basically our grading system for our, uh, at that time it was called SPM, which when translated would be MCE, which is, um, my goodness, a Malaysian Certificate of Education. So that's what SPM is in Malay. And uh, the grading system basically ran from one to nine, A1, A2, A1 was better. And then C3 all the way to C6, and then P7, P8, and F9. Now, I ended up getting, remarkably, a C3 for my Malay. And the only person more surprised than me was my uh, Malay language teacher. <laughs> and, on the, yeah, seriously, the day that I went to get the results, he said he saw the results, he would have called me if he had the number of the house. Because uh, I remember when we had our um, trial exams prior to the big exam, I think I had like the second highest mark in the entire form, but I failed the Malay, one Malay paper because he failed me by half a mark. I think he was trying to send a message and therefore I technically failed the entire exam. So it's, all, it's always my Malay's, my Malay language skills are rotten. And because of my, my linguistic limitations, uh, my ideal clients need to be proficient in English. And um, in terms of my, my practice, um, I've actually got four foundational practice principles. And so I don't accept all clients who approach me. Typically, uh, potential clients will approach me because they have read something that I have read. Uh, I beg your pardon. They've read something that I have written uh, yeah. uh, or they've heard me um, on TV or radio or, or you know, see me interviewed somewhere. Or again, pre-COVID, because they heard me speak on some uh, in in some pl- public uh, event, um, but I'm I'm I, I believe very strongly that the financial planning process is of value to everybody. Now, my the licensing regime that I am under is the Malaysian licensing regime, uh, so I am a licensed financial planner, and my license comes from the Malaysian Securities Commission. Back in two thousand and four. Malaysia became the first country in the world to actually control the term financial planner. Yeah. And uh, with that came all kinds of restrictions. 
And the pickup in the number of licensed financial planners over the years um, has actually been quite slow. I think even now, we're only at the few hundred level. Um, I don't think we've crossed a thousand people in terms of licensed financial planners. So whether it's 600 or 700 uh, licensees, I'm, I'm not really sure. But you must also understand that Malaysia has got two financial regulators. We've ah, yes, got the yes. Securities Commission, and we've also got what's known as Bank Negara Malaysia, which is the central bank. And so Bank Negara Malaysia takes care of our banks and our insurance companies. And the Securities Commission, which was established in 1993, uh, basically takes care of the capital market. I have a special place in my heart for the Securities Commission because on the day that the SC was established, uh, at that time, I was still writing for Malaysian Business Magazine because I wrote for the magazine from, I worked for the magazine from June 1st, 1990 to June 30th, 1994. And the Securities Commission was launched in 1993. On the day that it was launched, my cover story for Malaysian Business broke the story. So the day that the SC launched, I had the chairman of the Securities Commission on the cover. And I remember my uh, cover title was What's Up Doc? Uh, that's because um, he, uh, at that time he was uh, Dr. Munay Majid. Now I think he's Tansri, Malaysian titles, Tansri Dr. Munay Majid. And I, I had done a personality profile on him uh, some time back, also for the magazine. So we got to know each other. And uh, he was kind enough to invite me to his home, and I was able to interview him in his home office a couple of weeks before the SC actually launched on that very first day. So, yeah, SC has been good to me, and I'm very, very happy that I actually have the license there. So, um, I was telling you about foundational principles. Yeah, so as far as my practice is concerned, I have got four founding principles. I believe financial planning can help everybody, but... There are only a few hundred licensed financial planners in Malaysia that comes under the SC's purview. Under Bank Negara Malaysia, there is another legal designation which is called financial advisor. And I know, Gwen, at the beginning of um, this podcast, you were effectively using financial advisor as a generic term. So I'm just clarifying issues that as far as the licensing regime in Malaysia goes, uh, financial advisors are one group and financial planners are another. It's very, very confusing because as far as members of the public are concerned, you know, we're one and the same. Uh, so I hope I didn't confuse you. So as I said, the Malaysian Securities Commission has been very, very kind to me. And uh, what's important to understand is that because we've uh, Malaysia's got two financial regulators, the Securities Commission and Bank Negara Malaysia, the financial planning community comes under the SC and the financial advisor community comes under the, uh, comes under the purview of Bank Negara Malaysia. So my license is, is, uh, from the SC, Securities Commission. Um, with regard to, um, the types of clients that I take on, because we only have a few hundred licensed financial planners in Malaysia and we have a total population of more than 32 million people, probably 15 million working adults, um, you can tell there's a huge mismatch because yeah. the, the best working definition of financial planning that I know of and that I use pretty much every day uh, comes from an old version of the CFP Board of Standards website. I don't think you can find it in the current website. It's a 17-word definition. 
Financial planning is the process of meeting your life goals through the proper management of your finances. I just love that definition. It's so simple. And so I believe that financial planning can help lots of people. But I also very, very jealously guard my uh, my time. And over the yes. years, I have learned that if I have even one client who is a bad fit for my practice, then my quality of life actually plummets. So yeah. when people approach me because they have read something I have written or they've read something, you know, a quote of mine when I was interviewed or they saw me on TV or, or heard me on radio, um, I try and help them by teaching them the basics of um, financial planning. Uh, but I don't say yes to everyone who wants to hire me. I'm very, very careful. And so I actually have four foundational practice principles. So I'll just uh, tell you what those are, and then I'll give you a little more detail uh, if we still have time. Oh, yes, so, please. Go uh, ahead. Yeah. So my four foundational practice principles are, number one, delayed gratification. Um, number two, it's diversification. Number three, it's buy low, sell high. And number four, it's intense client education. So I actually share this information freely with people who approach me, and then we have a chat. Sometimes we have several meetings before, you know, I actually go ahead and I tell them about my uh, consulting models and how they might conceivably hire me should they want to do that. So when it comes to delayed gratification, as you well know, delayed gratification is the opposite of immediate gratification. And delayed gratification does not mean giving up stuff that is bad for stuff that is good. Delayed gratification actually means giving up stuff that is good, very often, for stuff that is great down the road. Um, unfortunately, uh, as, as, as I'm sure you can tell, given my uh, two extended periods of problems with credit cards, that delayed gratification does not come easily for me, nor did it come uh, easy, um, or nor did it come easily for my father. Um, my father was actually, my late father was actually married four times. My mother, my late mother was his second wife. Uh, my father had 10 children in all, and I'm just in the nondescript middle, so second wife, second child. Mm -hmm. And uh, when my father died, my older brother, who unfortunately has also passed away, he sat down and did a count, and he said that our father, who was very much an automotive man, um, had bought 76 brand new cars in his lifetime. Oh. And that, that's just the cars that my brother could come up with. So my father basically, um, uh, I think he passed away on April 4, 2008. He continued to practice law in the state of Malacca uh, right up to the end of the year 2007. And uh, so my father had a reputation as, as being a successful lawyer, but he always used to tell me that he was a very bad businessman. And what he actually meant was he was very bad at, at managing his money. And so um, I have a natural predisposition to want to embrace immediate gratification. Uh, and clearly my father did as well. And um, I'm not saying I got that from him because I think many of us have this issue. But over the years, over the decades, over the miles, I've worked out that delayed gratification is very, very important. So ideal client must actually be willing to exercise some level of delayed gratification. With regard to 
diversification. Um, I remember because um, my parents actually split up when I was one year old. And uh, so we left. My mother uh, took my older sister, Viji, and, and me, and I was a babe in arms. And we left Malacca and we went to a beautiful town in, in uh, the north of Malaysia called Taiping in the state of Perak. And so we were there for a year. I was a baby, so I had no clue. Uh, and then we ended up in Suramban. I'm actually speaking to you now in Suramban, which is kind of central. It's about an hour south of uh, Kuala Lumpur. If you're driving, if you want, want to drive from Kuala Lumpur to Singapore, uh, an hour out of Kuala Lumpur, you'd pass uh, Suramban. So we ended up in Suramban. And when we, when I was very young and we were living in Stramban, my mother would sometimes take me to the wet market and she'd learned very, very quickly, even as a small boy. I mean, I wanted to help my mother and I would carry bags, but my mother learned after a few rather sad um, episodes, never give Rajan eggs to carry. So Rajan doesn't <laughs> carry eggs. Okay. So, um, obviously when I was very young, she also told me, um, you know, that, that old saying, uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket. One basket yeah. And that actually for all of us in, in finance, we understand that as diversification. And so when I talk to my clients about diversification, I start off with saying basically, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And remember I was telling you, I was complaining about the drop in English standards in Malaysia yeah. over the last 50 years. I have had episodes where I have been speaking maybe in in schools or in churches or in universities. And I've had relatively, well, no, very intelligent, relatively young individuals. And when I say things like, well, you know the saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And I am very often greeted with blank stares. That's how bad it is. It's horrific. So I need to make sure that when I'm speaking to new clients that they understand what I mean. And then I talk about diversification. And then I explain to the clients that I actually believe in three different dimensions of diversification, uh, that I will construct portfolios for them with, with diversification across geographic regions, um, uh, which basically would be like the second dimension. The first dimension for diversification, obviously, would be across asset classes. So number one, diversification across asset classes. Um, uh, using risk off or relative, relatively risk off and relatively risk on asset classes. Um, and then I would tell, the, tell them that depending on um, what they would like, I can build uh, a combination of savings and investment portfolios using three, four or five asset classes. If it's five asset classes, the full menu, then I'll talk to them about cash, talk to them about fixed income, talk about equities. Uh, and because of everything that's going wrong in Malaysia right now, to the extent that I can, I'm actually uh, far more predisposed to put my clients' money in overseas funds outside of Malaysia than in Malaysia. Now, I'm, I'm optimistic that you know, something good can happen in due course. But right now, until it does, uh, Malaysia, I think, is going to not do very, very well. And then, of course, COVID is wave five of COVID is hitting every country. I believe um, yes. in the Philippines as well, you guys have quite an issue right now. Yeah. There was some kind yeah. of a big lockdown in Metro Manila. Yes. Uh, yes, definitely. Um, here too in, in, in Cebu, but there's um, a lot stricter in Manila. Yes. Okay. Well, just stay very, very safe. So, diversification, uh, yeah. as I was saying, um, various asset classes. What was I saying? Cash, fixed income, equities investment real estate and with investment real estate i tell people it's not the home that they live in but if they have brick and mortar investments like a condo or a house where they can collect rent yes. or a shop lot or a warehouse or a factory 
or they can just buy REITs um, directly, real estate investment trusts that are listed, or they can use REIT funds. So that would be four asset classes. And then we also talk about alternative investments of which, um, you know, you can get, use hedge funds, but hedge funds are not readily available in Malaysia. But uh, once the borders reopen, people can always stroll down to Singapore and buy some hedge funds if they want. Structured products, um, foreign currency, um, various other things. My favorite segment, if, if that's the right term, within the alternative investment space uh, is actually commodities, whether they be soft commodities or hard commodities, because commodities represent the stuff of life. Our civilization is built upon the utilization of commodities. So um, I'm still answering your question, the ideal client. Uh, are they going to be committed to, di- to delayed gratification? Um, do they comprehend what I'm saying about the importance of diversifying and actually diversifying across three dimensions? Number one, across asset classes. Number two, across geographic regions, meaning don't put all your money in Malaysia. Don't put all your money in the Philippines. Don't put all your money in Australia. Um, don't put all your money in the US or in China or in India. Try your level best to spread your money across the planet. Um, and do all of that and hopefully you'll do okay. And uh, then the last uh, dimension of diversification is actually to diversify the insertion of cash flow from uh, risk off to risk on. And with risk on investments, you obviously have oscillation of values. During bull markets, valuations will rise. During bear markets, valuations fall. Um, And so the best way to do that best ways to do that would actually be value cost averaging and dollar cost averaging. Dollar cost averaging is much, much easier to implement. uh, And therefore, we can actually set up an idiot-proof plan. And if it's idiot-proof, then chances are you're going to stick to it um, a a lot longer. So So as I'm explaining my approach to potential clients, I'm also watching them. Now, this is something that I actually learned as a journalist. Um, it's not just a case of asking who, what, where, when, why, and how. Um, you also want to be able to get a general sense. And if you've been around long enough, you can tell when people are not being genuine and you can tell when people really are hungry to learn. Mm, and yeah. um, I, I like working with people. You know, ideally, my practice will grow much bigger if I only accept big clients, fat cat clients, people with, with many, many millions of US dollars. And I do have high-end clients as well. But the truth of the matter is, I love my work. I mean, it's taken me such a long time to get to this point where I can pick and choose my clients. Uh, I I spoke to you about my late father. When he pretty much closed his practice at the end of 2007, he was a month past his 85th birthday. So from my from the perspective of my father's working career, I actually plan to retire early, meaning I plan to retire at 75. Now, I'm actually 57 years old now as I chat with you. So, you know, God willing, none of us knows whether we have even one extra day. But uh, when it comes to retirement planning on a global scale, the biggest risk that people face is actually longevity risk, that we will actually live longer than our money can last. And yes. so if, if I can, I, I would like to continue working at least till the age of 75. Um, most people, uh, especially if they are conventional employees, um, they don't exactly love their jobs. And quite a few people hate their work. Uh, yes. And yeah. when I have the retirement conversation with them, 
when they tell me, well, I can't wait to retire, then I want to do. And then I say, well, that means you're not retiring. You plan to do something else. So when I crunch the retirement needs numbers, and at this juncture, I can begin to do it in my head, uh, at least the first iteration. And then I can talk them through and tell them how much they will require in retirement assets and how much they actually have. Then we try and work out how much time they actually have. And then we'll see. But um, I believe financial planning, as I've mentioned already, is very, very important to everyone. And so there are times when I actually accept relatively small clients. And I also um, commit about 20% of my, my working year uh, for pro bono work. So, you know, this is to basically help people who can't pay my fees, um, but I'll just help them with a savings portfolio or help them start very, very young, very, very small. Um, and and the, the level of um, gratitude that you can actually extract or, or receive from individuals um, can be very, very heartening. So where was I? Yeah. So diversification, I mentioned that. Um, the third principle is actually buy low, sell high, which actually also ties in with dollar cost averaging. Because ideally, what we all want is to um, buy at the lowest point and sell at the highest point at every cycle. But God doesn't ring a bell to tell us when the lowest point is has been reached or when the highest point has been reached. And so dollar cost averaging, I think, if it's well-structured, is a very, very good way to bring down the weighted average cost of um, whatever investments you may be putting your money into. And the, the fourth principle is intense client education. Um, I am looking for long-term clients. I, I've got many clients who have been with me for um, more than 10 years, more than 12 years, more than 15 years. Some clients, uh, a few, um, 20 years. And um, I find that very, very heartening. And so we've got to the point now where the clients will tell me, okay, can you talk to my children? Can you get them started? <laughs> yeah. And the fact that, you know, because to the kids, then I am Uncle Rajan, right? And I'm 57 <laughs> yeah. years old. So I've actually had some of the youngsters say, Uncle Rajan, how much longer are you going to be in the business? So I sort of calm yeah. them down saying, God willing, my target retirement age is 75. So over the next 18 years, hopefully I can at least teach you what needs yeah. to be done. Mm. Um, so I hope I've answered your question. I'm sorry I've taken so long, but uh, I've tried to give you as much detail as possible. Oh, that's actually uh, very uh, nice that you shared that because I think this is very important for financial advisors, especially the ones who are starting out, um, that they don't pick and choose. Um, and, and that's because they're always afraid that the money won't be rolling in if they start doing that. But I, I also, and I appreciate that you shared this, that it's important for, for you to pick and choose, um, because it's important for our mental health as well and for our longevity in this respective career. Um, and also, yeah, and I want to, um, tackle on that as well um, while, while, while we're in this topic is that why do you think it's very important for, or first, before, before that question, I guess my question would be, when did you start feeling or, or seeing in your business that your business can sustain if you start choosing your clients instead of re receiving everyone who comes to the door? Oh, I think I made that decision long before the business was large enough for me to rationally mm. start turning people away. I just made the decision that, you know, my time is valuable and what I have to say, I think, has great value. 
And so, um, actually, no, actually, for very, very early on, um, I told you that the Malaysian uh, legislative framework for financial planning changed in 2004 when Malaysia became the first country in the world to control the term financial planner. Now, my wife, Rachel, and I, we um, established our company, which is called RD Wealth Creation, which um, you mentioned earlier when you were introducing me. We own the company 50-50. Um, she just lets me be the CEO. So that's why you said CEO of RD Wealth Creation, but my yeah. wife lets me do it. So I'm the one who has to work for her. And um, she does everything that I don't want to do. Seriously. I mean, she's telling me which, which audit documents to sign yesterday and I'm just like, I'm so glad she's there because I really don't want to think about this nonsense. <laughs> um, so I, I, I love the business that I'm in. I love the profession that I'm in. But, uh, you know, the business structure, just, just smile and pay the accountants and the auditors and whatever is necessary. Uh, and then let other people do the job that they do better. So we established RD Wealth Creation in April 2001. So the company has been in existence now for 20 years and four months as we speak in August 2021. And uh, from the very beginning, I actually decided, no, I would be careful. But despite that level of care, intermittently, I've actually had clients uh, that were a bad fit. So, you know, none of us is a perfect judge of character, and none of us can actually uh, foresee what's going to happen in the future. So I had a few missteps, but the decision to not accept everyone that decision I made um, more than 20 years ago when I started the boutique financial planning outfit. I need to uh, take a couple of steps back just to explain to you the, the timing of what happened. So um, in 1996, when I was rescued by that phone call from Singapore and I joined the Smart Investor magazine team in Singapore, I was down there for a while. I learned the system and the shareholders of, I think it was called Pan Pacific Media. That was the company that was publishing Smart Investor Magazine in Singapore. The shareholders had a vision of replicating the Singapore Smart Investor model in various countries across Southeast Asia. And it made sense for the second experiment after Singapore to be in Malaysia, the second experiment to be based in Malaysia. And so I was transferred back to Malaysia as the founding editor of Smart Investor magazine. This was in the uh, latter part of 1996. And one of the cover stories that I wrote for my Malaysian version of Smart Investor magazine was uh, of a company called KL Mutual. KL Mutual, today it's called Public Mutual, same company. Uh, KL Mutual then and, and Public Mutual now is the single largest um, ma local Malaysian unit trust company or mutual fund company. Um, and I did a cover story on the company. And I, I remember the title of that was Three Wise Men. So I put the CEO, I put the number two person. CEO's name was, uh, is, well, he's no longer CEO, but his name is Edmund Chia. Uh, the number two person, a uh, good friend of mine, um, became a good friend of mine. His name is Wong Bun Choi. And then the third person on the cover was a guy called Chong Chang Chung. He was like the lead fund manager at the time. So three wise men put them there. 
and I got to know them. This was in 1996. And I, um, you know, my, my degree is in physics and computing. So I have a, yes, a reasonable yes. level of numeracy. But I had never heard of the term dollar cost averaging until in 1996. It's already 32 years old at the time. 1996, when I was doing that cover story on KL Mutual, and then the idea of dollar cost averaging came up. And so I wrote a sidebar on dollar cost averaging. And I must have been really convincing in what I wrote because I convinced myself <laughs> after the story was published to trot over to the KL Mutual office in Saramban. It was um, right near the wet market. And I said, I want to invest, uh, I want to save, I want to invest a little bit of money. Now, this is in 1996. If you remember, or you may be too young, Asian financial crisis. The Asian financial crisis began in 1997 and continued into 1998. So I began dollar cost averaging with my own money in 1996. And I kept that throughout the Asian crisis. And then when things bounced back um, after September 1998, um, I realized I made an enormous amount of money because dollar cost averaging really, really does work. But you have to have Nerves of steel. When, yes. when the whole world is falling <laughs> apart, you have yeah. to have nerves of steel. Yes. Uh, and so during that period, uh, I did the right thing. There have been subsequent um, crises where sometimes I've done the right thing and other uh, things and other times I've made mistakes. But if I make mistakes, I try and pivot very, very quickly. Mm, so in 96, good. I got to know the senior team in KL Mutual. And in 1998, the company actually wanted to write, uh, wanted to publish a book on financial planning. And so freelance writers were invited. Now, remember I told you after Standard Chartered Securities, I tried to start a freelance writing outfit. Yes, and because yes, of bad yes. financial planning, I was sweating bullets and then I got <laughs> rescued by the call to go to Singapore. So finish off the Singapore stint, uh, was the founding editor of Smart Investor Magazine in Malaysia. And then, then I was able to leave employment with Smart Investor I, uh, for a short while after that, I had Smart Investor as one of my writing clients. And then um, in 1997, I uh, wrote my first book. It was published by Times Publishing out of Singapore, and it was called Your A to Z Guide to the Stock Market. And then uh, in 1998, my friends that I had got to know in 96, uh, I was one of the external writers invited to make a pitch for this book, and they liked my idea, so I was brought in. And uh, we ended up, just before Christmas 1998, um, finishing off, and then uh, KL Mutual published a book called Financial Freedom, Your Guide to Lifetime Financial Planning. I was the external writer. I wrote that book in novel format. So it was a story. It was a series of stories. Ah, Each the one chapter that I love, focused, yes. Uh, sorry? Sorry, um, I was saying that I love those novel types. So my favorite like finance book is The Richest Man in Babylon. So Richest yes, Man in Babylon, George yes, S. Classen yes, is fabulous. Yes, yeah, I yes. I revisit it more than once uh, every year. I love George yes. S. Classen. I remember when I put my final full stop uh, on the first full draft of Financial Freedom, I remember ending the draft, leaning back, uh, my writing, uh, leaning away, pushing away from my writing desk, leaning back in my chair, thinking, if I die now, I have left my legacy. Ah. Um, and so I, I wrote, I co-wrote the book. Um, so it was Edmund Chia, Wong Bun Choi, and then a chap called Alex Sito. Alex uh, is Malaysian. 
he was actually hired by Mr. Wong, the number two person, to come back from New Jersey because he'd actually been doing financial planning in the U.S. And so he headed our financial, the KL Mutual's financial planning division there. So, and then I was just a very blur external writer, but I had done a little bit of financial planning work in uh, writing in 1996. And plus, I had the whole long history with the credit card, so uh, I had done some reading on it. So I was very happy with that book. So 1998, uh, we co-wrote that. And then um, I worked on but another book. which is a sequel, polit- right? I do. But yeah. uh, 1999, I did a political bio, which has got nothing to do with this story. That bio was called The Sabahan, The Life and Death of Tun Fuad Stevens. And then the following year, in 2000, there was a sequel to Financial Freedom, which was Financial Freedom 2. Financial Freedom 2 through Malaysian Equities and Unit Trusts. And again, uh, that, that, that second book had three co-authors. It was Edmund Chia, Wong Bun Choi. Alex had been brought in to, for the first book for financial planning. But because this was not a financial planning book, it was an equities book, Alex wasn't there, and then it was me. So three co-authors for the second book and four co-authors for the first, 1998 and 2000. Now, you can imagine, even though I'm very, I'm a very, very slow learner, uh, it was remarkable. I mean, learning from people who are so much smarter and then having to write and rewrite and think and simplify. And so when even after the first Financial Freedom book came out, and it was actually a bestseller, Financial Freedom uh, 1 was published in English and then I think in Malay and then I think they came out in Chinese. Financial Freedom 2 only in English. But um, the the series raised, because uh, I, I, was, I was actually quite good. I, I negotiated a very, very good writing contract. So I made quite a bit of money. Uh, uh, but good. the yeah. net proceeds after they had done the publishing and the printing and paying off me uh, for ongoing royalties, we still managed to raise 800,000 ringgit for Malaysian charities, a whole slew of charities. So I was very, very happy with that project. Uh, we helped people. So um, that basically was um, how I gained, I guess, a, an educational base in financial planning. But the book came out, the first book came out in Christmas 1998. Very soon after that, people started approaching me, asking me for financial planning advice, asking me to help them. And I said, I, I really can't. I mean, I'm just a writer. And so it took two or three years after that, I think a couple of years after that, before I actually earned my CFP. Now, in Malaysia, the Certified Financial Planner stand, uh, Professional Mark is governed, is, it's, it's taken care of in Malaysia by FPAM, the Financial Planning Association of Malaysia. Both uh, Lim Hui Hui and, and I, because you mentioned Hui Hui just now, we're, we're involved um, as speakers and writers for the Financial Planning Association. Uh, she's very, very good. You know, she's, she's got a giving heart and, and, and she's a very, very successful financial planner. The bottom line is that once I got my CFP mark, then I thought, okay, I have credentials. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should start thinking about you know, starting a boutique financial planning practice. And so uh, after I got my CFP, that's when I started my boutique financial planning practice. And that ran for, um, I think, three years until the uh, the uh, legislative landscape in Malaysia changed. And then I moved from one company to the next, etc. So right now, my financial planning principal company is actually uh, the Canadian giant uh, Manulife. Manulife has about a trillion Canadian dollars under management, split 
relatively equally between the uh, life fund as well as the asset management side. Um, but uh, clients, when they hire me, they hire me through uh, my company, which is RD Wealth Creation. That's very interesting because I feel like not everyone has really decided. Like when I actually, I mentioned that uh, I used to be like a risk advisor and I also had that idea that I wanted to, you know, pick and choose my clients. But a lot of um, my colleagues actually told me that, um, it's not really for us to decide because um, here in the Philippines, we still work on commission. Um, but I felt like it was important for us to to have that um, freedom to plant that seed now so that we can sow it later. Um, because you mentioned like your your time was was important to you. And I think it because it is important to you that others will be able to see that your, your time is really important. But also, I feel like mental health is also important, um, especially nowadays that um, you it's really better for the longevity of uh, your, your business to work with people that you actually like working with. Um, Absolutely. And so, yeah, yeah. So that's why I, it was very interesting that, you were able to really have that discipline to to pick and choose the the ones that you felt was a good fit for you. So I guess wrapping up, I'd like to ask you, what would be your the best advice that you can give to I guess um, up and coming financial advisors or for those financial advisors who are really hit by the the pandemic and the um, like the ongoing crisis nowadays, um, just to keep pushing through. A few years ago, I created something called the Rajan Devadasan Blueprint for Financial Freedom. And there are various iterations of it. Uh, you can do one set for conventional employees, um, another for business owners. And uh, particularly when COVID basically exploded across the planet, uh, the WHO uh, declared a global pandemic on March 11th, 2020. One week later, exactly, uh, on March 18th, 2020, Malaysia shut down. Um, I guess it happened. I'm not sure what the exact date is for the Philippines, but basically every country felt like dominoes. And what I found during uh, the questions that were posed to me by journalists uh, in the early months of the beginning of the uh, what we call it, the GVC, the Great Virus Crisis, is um, that the blueprint that I had put together would also help businesses. And I'm sure what's happened in Malaysia has also happened in the Philippines. Uh, we have had countless restaurants shut down permanently. We've had many, many hotels shut down. Uh, God knows how many airlines worldwide have actually basically just, you know, closed their doors and are not going to fly anymore. So uh, this particular blueprint has got five elements. So what I'll do is I'll share the elements and then I'll, um, I'll give people an opportunity if uh, they actually want to learn about the blueprint for me. I actually run these um, free webinars uh, pretty much once a month and I talk about the blueprint. So if that's okay with you, then I'll, I'll just give them the details. But to begin with, ah, definitely. The, the five elements of the blueprint are 
Number one, it's actually active income. This is for an individual. If you're running a business, then uh, it's the revenue that you bring in for a business that is not running on autopilot. If you stop turning up, you're not going to make any money. So you've got to work on your active income. And very simple question is, do you want to have more or less? And the answer, obviously, is you want to have more. The answer is always you want to have more. Yeah. Um, and so how do you make sure? Right now, we're in a unique crisis situation, but things will eventually get better. This too shall pass and life will get better. It's very, very important that we actually uh, consistently maintain that message because quite a few times, uh, Gwen, you have talked about the importance of maintaining mental health. And, uh, you know, the number of suicides, uh, attempted suicides, it's just so tragic what's going on. And I think as people who have a professional foundation that actually can make a difference to the people of the world, to the adults of the world, it is um, our responsibility to try and communicate hope. And the way that a particular household or a particular individual would need to strengthen his or her finances is grow your active income. And how do you grow your active income? You work harder and you work smarter. And, you know, the, the, I, I don't know what the standard is in the Philippines, but in Malaysia right now, as with many parts of the world, normally when you talk about a full-time job, people are working um, 40 hours a week, uh, maybe five days a week. Is that, is that pretty similar in the Philippines or uh, do you guys work yeah. longer hours? Yes, it's like the um, work hard and just work hard, play hard, but still work hard, <laughs> work harder. Yeah, but my, my question is, uh, is 40 hours a week pretty standard in the Philippines? Um, I'm not sure because uh, I'm not in that industry anymore, but I think so. Um, okay, the I'm, reason I'm I ask for, is... for Australian, so they're very into like no overtime. But Oh, yeah. work, work-life balance, cool. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, the, the, the message that I put across in the Rajan Devadasan Blueprint for Financial Freedom is, particularly during this period of crisis, COVID has made the world poorer, which means uh-huh. COVID has made the average human being poorer. And we can either just sit back and say, well, woe unto us, this is the way it's going to be. Or we can say, no, I don't accept it. COVID may be stealing wealth, but I choose to continue to grow my wealth. And that means at least maybe for the first, for the next two, three, four years, um, I think we're going to have to work harder and smarter than we ever have before, which I think for a lot of people will mean you say goodbye to the 40 hour week. And this may not sit very well with an Aussie crowd, but I'm just telling you where I'm coming from. And, um, you know, uh, if you had cut, your hours have been cut, maybe you've got to take on an additional part-time job or a second part-time job. If you've lost your full-time job, maybe you need to take on three or four part-time jobs. But I really think that for those who want to continue to increase their wealth, they've got to focus on active income and they're going to have to say goodbye to 40 hours a week and consider a new norm of working 50 hours, 60 hours, 70 hours. The really hardcore people will be 80 to 90 hours. (laughs) I recommend nobody goes past 90 hours a week because that's how people drop dead from heart failure. But for a (laughs) short season, to make sure that you maintain your income, work harder than ever before. The next element, of course, is what I call operational expenses. Now, operational expenses are what we pay to maintain our lifestyle. 
what is your base currency in the Philippines right now? Is it pesos? Yes, Philippine peso, yeah. Right. Okay, so for a, a mid-level individual in the Philippines, what would be an average salary, uh, sorry, mid-level executive, what would be an average salary in pesos per month? I guess it would be around 20, 30 per month. Uh, 20, 30 what? Uh, uh, 20,000 20, pesos to 30,000 pesos, yes. Okay, so let's just assume it's 30,000. I bet you, in Cebu right now, you know people who are earning 30,000 pesos a month and spending 30,000 pesos a month. Uh, and you more. also know people who are earning 30 and spending 25, uh, earning 30 and maybe spending 20. And at the other end of the scale, you've got people who are earning 30000 but spending 32000 or 35000 or 40000 yeah. And so that's where the operational expenses come in. And uh, so ideally, if you are serious about uh, building up your finances and getting to the point of solid financial freedom, then you have to proactively decide that you will work hard to get your active income up and you will control your operational expenses using a written budget, not a budget in your head, a written budget, pen on paper or on an Excel spreadsheet. And so if you manage to get your operational expenses under control, then your active income grows because you're working harder and smarter. You don't spend as much. You've got excess money. That excess money should go toward paying down your portfolio of debt. And there are various strategies to pay down your portfolio of debt. And so you meet all your normal monthly payments and you also try and accelerate your payments because as we eliminate our debts, we actually de-risk our lives. It's very, very important. Every time we hit a crisis, and remember that this particular GVC, this great virus crisis will pass. Yes. But five or 10 years from now, another crisis will hit and it will hit us from an unexpected direction. And every time a crisis hits, most people suffer. But there will always be a minority that enters this new crisis ready, crisis ready. And the people who are crisis ready come out the other end far wealthier. And the two traits that they actually share are zero debt or very low debt and huge cash buffer or cash reserve uh, positions. And I call the cash reserve position the emergency buffer, the EBF. So of the five elements in my blueprint, I've given you four. Active income, operational expenses, take care of your portfolio of debt, build up your emergency buffer fund, and then hopefully you've still got money to flow through and you've got to start building your portfolio of wealth, which should be geared toward generating passive income. So that's a lot of stuff, and we can't cover everything in this podcast. But if anyone actually wants to uh, learn more about it, there are a couple of things they can actually do. Uh, so my name is Rajan Devadasan. I'm, I'm sure if they're listening to the podcast, they will have the correct spelling. And so people <laughs> yeah. are welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, people are welcome to uh, follow me on Twitter. And I also run these. Uh, I run At the moment, I've got a, a suite of three webinars. Two of them are free and one is a premium paid one. But all the information is actually found at learn.rajandavidarson.com. So that's uh, H-T-T-P-S and then it's learn, L-E-A-R-N dot and then rajandavidarson, R-A-J-E-N-D-E-V-A-D-A-S-O-N dot com. 
Um, so that's pretty much it, really. I, I thank you for the remarkable amount of time you've given me, but I, I guess they're going to have to slack this down. This is way over the time that you <laughs> <That's> allocated. Fine. <laughs> that's fine, Rajan. So thank you so much. I will put all of those um, links to your your LinkedIn and your Twitter handle as well as your website as well so that they can learn from and get to know you more and, and contact you possibly if they're interested in knowing more about or um, being part of your webinar. So thank you so much for coming in. And very, very well said. Um, nothing beats being prepared. And I definitely, definitely agree. So thank you so much again for coming on to the show. And yeah, let's let's get out of this pandemic um, richer with a healthier mentally and financially. Absolutely. Gwen, thank you. I'm so honored that you actually reached out to me and I hope what little I had to say was uh, of some use to some people. Um, uh, yes. Take care of yourself and I hope we get a chance to chat again soon. Yes, definitely, definitely. So thank you so much, Rajin. Have a good one. All the best, Gwen. Bye-bye. Take care.